Pastor John Kavakis here. I want to welcome you to Morton Bible Fellowship's weekly service. Today's question is, who has authority in your life today? And we're going to get the answers out of Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 47. And while you're here, we'd appreciate it if you would give us a thumbs up or a like, or even subscribe to our channel. We'd love to hear from you again, and we'd also love to hear your comments. So let's join the service now as we pick up with our sermon today. Who's the boss? Uh, look, before we get to our passage today, a couple things I want to talk to you about. Last week I came to you and told you about Pastor Ovidio uh, in uh, Romania. Well, a couple of us have been over there a few times. It's an incredible uh, ministry over there to the Gypsy Villages. He did their camp at their main campsite uh, in July, and now they've gone out on the road. They were short on finances. Um, we are... Thank you so much for the generous outpouring that you have expressed in supporting him. Uh, we're running about $1,200 short of how much he needs. So uh, for those of you that would like to participate in Ovidio's ministry, uh, we have a special category set up on the website, Romania Missions. You can give to that. Uh, you can send checks to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Uh, you can contact one of us. But I got to tell you something. Uh, this is a, an expression of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, whatever part you play in the ministry here at Warrington Bible Fellowship is reaching into a small village this morning in Romania where people have not heard the gospel, they have not heard the word of God, and we're helping Ovidio to spread it. He's, he's established 37 churches so far. They're all up and running. He's watching over them. He's got a network of people. This is real gospel ministry. Thank you. Praise God. And let's see what happens with, with the rest of the month that he does. The other thing that I want to mention is it's been a while. Uh, some of you are already there. Where's Pat Newts? He told me he was going to stand up. He's outside hiding. Uh, next Sunday is Hawaiian Church Sunday. We haven't done this in a long time. We're going to do it. We're going to have a good time. The brighter, the better. If you've got a shirt at home that needs batteries, bring it in. We'll give you an award. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Next shirt, next Sunday is Hawaiian Church Sunday. And no, this is not a Hawaiian shirt. This is Paisley. Those of you who grew up in the 60s know what I'm talking about. And there are fewer and fewer of us around. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 20. We're going to do the whole chapter today. So if you've got a roast in the oven, I hope it has Wi-Fi and you can turn it off. So uh, for those of you that, that came in late, uh, we've got word find puzzles and we've got handouts uh, at the foyers. We get the deacons. If you put your hand up, we'll make sure you get one of those. Um, and that will help you track where we are in the sermon. So while you're looking for Luke 20... Uh, let me tell you about, I, I had a job in Orlando. Uh, Kelly and I were going together. I was working at Burger King. I had gone to Burger University in Miami. I knew everything you needed to know about making hamburgers. You put them on the bun, you wrap it up, you give it to the customer. It took me two weeks to learn that. And I was working for a guy, uh, manager there, good guy. Uh, the company I was working for, I was fast-tracking with. They had plans for me, so on and so forth. Uh, but there were two factions in the company, and um, the guy that was sponsoring me had gone back to Burger University from Orlando and was gone for two weeks. And I walked into church, into the the, the restaurant, not the church, uh, one morning, and my boss, my manager, I was the co-manager, said came over and said, "John, I'm going to have to ask you for your keys." 
Now, what? He said, I'm going to have to ask you for your keys. Said, Why do you want my keys? You're fired. And I, I, I really hadn't done anything. And, and it, it, I wasn't getting fired for not doing anything. I hadn't done anything worthy of me to fire. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm sorry, but you're fired. I need your keys. And I said to him, do you know who I am? And he said, do you know who I am? I said, well, why don't you tell me who you are? He said, I'm the guy that just fired you. And I realized that he had authority in my life. I didn't particularly care for that authority at that particular point, but he had the authority to let me go. So that kind of leads us to our question for the day. Who has authority in your life today? Who has authority in your life today? Now, last week when we got together, we found out that you've got to keep moving. And, what, and, and the whole deal was that Yes, Jesus saves us, but we will spend the rest of eternity moving closer and closer and closer to him. And we're just kind of practicing that right now. So we, we move towards him. We are forever getting closer. We're forever learning more. We are forever more and more in awe of him and the glory of God. And we walk in that glory. So this week we're going to see that even as we move closer to him, that we've got to be careful because we have authorities in our lives, but for the most part, we choose. We choose who has authority over us. Think about this. Now, we're going to see. The, the sermon title today is, Who's the Boss? Okay, some of you don't remember that show. That's all right. <laughs> Who's the Boss? And we're going we're to see five examples of authority. We're going to see the authority of Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 18. In verses 19 through 26, we're going to see the authority of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And in 27 through 40, we'll see the, the authority of Moses. 41 through 44 will be the, the authority of the scribes, the scriptures. And 45 through 47 is the authority of scribes. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at this authority of Christ. Now, we have to understand the context here. Uh, for those of you that heard last week's sermon, you know what we're talking about. Jesus is headed towards uh, Jerusalem. He's entered. Um, there was a parade. There was a prophecy. Uh, there was a whole lot going on, but he walked into the temple, and at the moment that everybody thought that he would come together with the leadership of the Jews, he cleansed the temple. He started throwing people out. They're occupying the court of the Gentiles. There was no room for the Gentiles. Yeah, it's significant that he says, didn't you know that my, my house, my father says this is a house for the house of prayer for all nations? There was no new room for the nations. So we found out that, that the, the temple was cleansed and all the people, this is important, all the people were hanging on to his words. So the general population was listening to Jesus and was excited about him. They knew something was going on. They didn't know what it was, but they knew something was going on. So in verse 1 of chapter 20, we see one day. This, this is a significant day. It's a day during Holy Week. Jesus is very near the cross, and every day is going to bring him closer. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching what? The gospel. We don't think about Jesus preaching the gospel, do we? I mean, all he really had to do was stand up and go, it's me. But he, he knew that this was, this was an unusual thought for them. He knew that everybody didn't realize that he was the Messiah, didn't know that he was the Son of God. So he's preaching them from what? From the scriptures. So he was preaching from Romans, John, 
No. He's preaching from the Old Testament. He's preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. Don't let anybody tell you the Old Testament is outdated. He's preaching the gospel, and the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. Now, this same group of folks we saw in the last couple verses of chapter 19. Luke wants us to see something here. And he wants us to see that the people are hanging on to the words, but the leadership is separating themselves from the people. There's a distinction between the people that are listening and the people that are leading. The general population was more or less accepting him. That's going to become clear very soon. Uh, and, and these other leaders show up, and they're apprehensive for a lot of reasons. We'll talk about them. But basically, there's tension between them and Jesus Christ. And they have a question for Jesus. So verse 2, they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, Jesus had just thrown all the merchants out of the temple. Uh, he's been teaching with incredible authority. People are being healed. People are being raised from the dead. And the, the leaders want to know, what or who gives you the authority to do this? So instead of answering them, Jesus has a question for them. Now, he does this frequently. Verse 3. He says, I also will ask you a question, now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, this is a dilemma for the leaders, probably a little bit deeper than it first appears to be. If John was sent by God, and John's ministry called for repentance and baptism, if we remember correctly, and his ministry also pointed towards Christ, he claimed to be the forerunner. So if John was sent by God and Christ allowed himself to be baptized by John, then their ministries are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. So if you accept one, you have to accept the other. And the real question is, if John was sent from heaven, why did you kill him? Why did you oppose him? Tell me what happened there. So the leaders try to trick Jesus, and it backfires. Verse 5, and they discussed with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? And if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And they're kind of standing there going, oh, well, we, we didn't know. We didn't know the answer. That's why we asked you. So if they deny John, the people are going to rise up. And the next thing that will happen is if they deny John, they're going to go, well, you know, if you deny John, if you were wrong about him, you must be wrong about Jesus as well. Why are you giving him a hard time? And by the way, if, if they really thought that John was a prophet, the, the penalty for ignoring a prophet, for refusing to listen, was stoning. So the leaders are stuck. They were stuck back at the end of 19. And they're stuck again. They are mired in their hate and their rejection of Christ. Verse 8, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, he's not saying I'm not going to give you the answer. What he's saying is, I just gave you the answer. You asked me by what authority, and I asked you, what about John? If you think John was sent by God, well, my authority is the same place where John's is. You know, 
the, 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 uh, God sent me, God sent John, and you just refuse to acknowledge it. So, so Jesus knows they're not getting this, so he's going to tell a parable. He's going to tell a story that explains it all. Verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now watch this. The tenants are interested in the heir and being the heirs, but they're not interested in having a relationship with the son. They want the kingdom, but they don't want the son, which means they don't want the father either. So, so let's kill him. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, Jesus answers his own questions, and he says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard now there's a clear indication here the owner of the vineyard is God his son is Jesus the people he sent are the prophets and what Jesus is saying to these leaders he said you know God sent you all the prophets and all you did was beat them up and kill them now now he sent his son and you're about to kill him as well and the penalty for this and this son that the Jews would have a real hard time with is that God is going to give the kingdom to others you're not going to get the kingdom. Oh. So when they, when the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes heard this, they said, surely not. That can't be true. We're the people of God. We're the chosen ones. We're the heirs of the kingdom. Not even God can take it from us. And that's where they're headed with all this. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them. Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus saying, I told you, you're not getting this. You refuse to see what's happening. I am the foundation of your faith. Everything is built around me and you are rejecting me. And because of that, no kingdom. Then in verse 18, Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's kind of oblique, but listen carefully. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 through 16. And this, here in, in this quote is the authority of Christ. Basically, what Jesus is saying is anyone that, that comes to Jesus by by any human means are going to be destroyed. The only way to avoid being broken or crushed by the stone that he is, is to become one with the stone. Become one with the foundation of the faith. Be united to Jesus Christ. Jesus has the authority given to him by God. The question is, do they recognize it? It's a good question for us today. 
Do we recognize the authority that Jesus has? The struggle that the priests and the scribes and the elders have is they just don't see it. They don't see the authority that Jesus has. And and the truth of the matter is, the authority of Christ does not govern their lives. The authority given Christ by God is not the primary motivation of their lives. They've got other things going on. What governs their lives? Well, we don't have to read in between the lines too far to see that what governs their lives really is. I mean, we can talk about Caesar. We can talk about, uh, you know, their positions and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is what governs their lives is self-interest, self-protection. Is that a good question for us to ask ourselves today? What governs our lives? The authority of Christ in the Word of God? Are we, do we find ourselves in situations where we need to preserve ourselves? Where maybe we need to help God with His job of watching over us? Maybe we need to let Him know what we need or what we want so that He can fill in the blanks for us? Do we have areas of our lives where we go, hey God, we got this. You can just, I know you're a busy guy. You can take care of all that stuff over there. We got this. Don't worry. Your church is in trouble. I'll protect it. Does Jesus Christ and his authority govern our lives? Let's take a look at the authority of Caesar, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at their very hour. They want to seize him. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They're like, oh, we get it. You're talking about us. Jesus is just smiling. Oh, yeah, you got it. But they feared the people. And, and, and again, maybe they're afraid of the people, but my guess is they're probably more afraid about losing their status, losing their esteem more than what the people might do. They had the Roman soldiers to project them if, if things got out of hand. So they watched him, verse 20, and sent spies, infiltrators into his group, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So Jesus just inferred that his authority comes from God, and the leaders hear them, but they want to turn him over to the governor. What they really want to do is turn him over to what they perceive to be a higher authority. Somebody who has more power than Jesus Christ. It's a denial of who Christ is. It's a denial of his authority. And in verse 21, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So this is not recognition of who it is. This is mocking him. Is it lawful, in verse 22, for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're talking about the taxes. And now, they kind of say, Jesus did this either or thing on us. We're going to do, do the same thing with him. And th- this, is a, this is a hotbed of controversy they're talking about. The Roman taxes were, were a political hot potato. They were a constant reminder that the Jewish people were being oppressed by Rome, that they were under Roman rule, and, and they didn't like that. And the taxes were heavy. And so if, if Jesus supports the tax the Jews will then realize that he's not there to give them the political military deliverance that they're, they're looking for. If, if he does not support the tax, well, then the leaders can turn him over to the governor because the governor is not going to allow anybody to not pay tax, especially somebody who's trying to lead the people. 
So in verse 23, but Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. Now watch this. In order for them to know that it has Caesar's likeness on it, they had to have some. They've got denarii in their pockets. They are using the Roman system. They carried around. Now, in the temple, there had to be a temple coin, and so there were special coins minted for that. But outside the temple, in the city, in the region, they used Roman coins, carried them around in their pockets. They did business with them. So the, the leaders want to take advantage of everything Rome has to offer, use their roads, use their systems, be protected by them, so on and so forth. And now they want to use that as a weapon against Christ. And so Christ says, well, tell me, tell me who's on those coins you got in your pocket. And they say, Caesar. And he said to them, verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, there's profound substance in what Jesus is saying here. If you're going to enjoy the benefits of the state, then pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. If you're going to enjoy the kingdom of God, well, understand this. The kingdom of God does not negate the existence of the government. They can exist side by side. And we know from our reading of Scripture that God appoints the leaders, God appoints the kings, He sets them up, and He brings them down. You don't have to pick one or the other. Give the government its due, but be loyal to God as well. In other words, be a good citizen, but strive to be a better Christian at the same time. Honor your government, but honor God even more. In short, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to dismantle Rome. He's saying, I'm here to bring the people of God closer to God. To sanctify them. To teach them about his character and nature. And to do that even as they live in the Roman Empire. Jesus wants his followers to live in the world. To function as citizens of the real world. While keeping their eye on their citizenship in eternity. Again. This is, this is a lesson for us today. Amen? This is something that the Bible is yelling out to us. Jesus is not here. Jesus is not here to fix the political system, brothers and sisters. Doesn't mean we don't participate in it. But that's not where our answers are. Jesus is here to fix you and me. He's here to make us into a spotless bride. He's here to present us to the Father. He's here to make us ambassadors, messengers of love and grace and mercy and the gospel. Well, their response is this, verse 26. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, (laughs) they became silent. They're not defeated. They're not giving up. They just haven't been able to trap him. Well, you know, appealing to Caesar didn't help. It, didn't, it turned out Caesar didn't have the authority that they thought he did. So maybe, maybe they can appeal to the authority of Moses. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there's a resurrection. 
Now, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, they were two sects. I, I hate to call them political parties, but there are some parallels here. The, the, the Pharisees were relatively uh, based on oral tradition and interpretation of the Scriptures. The Sadducees looked for a literal interpretation of the Scriptures. They rejected oral tradition. Uh, they were very conservative. The Pharisees were maybe a little bit more liberal, but they're not the same parallels that we see today. Um, so the thing we need to know about the Sadducees is they, they adhere to a strict interpretation of Torah. They, they, these are the words, this is what we're doing. Verse 28, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, again, nobody's calling him Lord, they're calling him teacher, you know, you're, you're a teacher, tell us this. Moses, they start with Moses. Now, again, they bring up Moses. This is the great mamma of the leadership of, of the Jews. Uh, Moses was the one that led him out of Egypt, the one that took him to the mountain. Moses was the one that went face-to-face with God. He got the, the, the law, uh, he got the ceremonial law, the, civical, the civic law. Uh, everything was passed down to Moses, and they revered Moses as much as they did any other Jew. So it says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they're right about this. And it's straight out of Deuteronomy 25. It describes a concept called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage was designed to ensure that a bloodline continued. So if a man married a woman and they didn't have any children, and he died, then the woman would go and become the wife of the brother, and the children from that union would have the, man, the original brother's name. So it, it's kind of a picture of the eternal nature of the bloodline of Christ, uh, just done in a practical way. So it's designed so that the brother continues the bloodline. And so, so they establish that, they've got that right, but look what they do with it. Verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Now, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. If if they have any position on the afterlife at all, uh, it, it, it's not what Jesus is talking about. It doesn't include the idea of resurrection. So with that in mind, the, the, the question continues in verse 32. Afterward, the woman also died. Now they're all dead. No children. In the resurrection, in verse 33, they say, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So the Sadducees want to extend that law into eternity and show that the concept of the resurrection doesn't work. Because all it is is confusing. There's no answer to this. In particular, when you extend it into eternity. Then the problem that the Sadducees are struggling with is they're trying to apply their understanding of the law as to how God administrates the law. And there may be some differences. They believe that their absurd question reveals how absurd the teaching about the resurrection is. Now, in order to get there, they had to make two assumptions. And number one, they had to assume that the afterlife was much the same as the current life is. Things aren't going to change very much. 
And number two, that marriage in the afterlife would be like marriage in the present life. So in other words, the Sadducees think things in heaven, if there is a heaven, are going to be a lot like they are here, if we believe that at all, kind of a little coda. And most of them don't think much of anything happens. What they're primarily concerned with is living holy lives right here, right now. So they don't want to be talking about all this afterlife stuff. And Jesus tells them that their assumptions are a mistake. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. He describes the present age pretty well. And the present age is where marriage is a gift. One is designed to be a reflection. We don't find this out until later on in the New Testament. But marriage is designed to be a reflection between Christ and the church. It's representative of their presence here on earth. To unite two people in a testimony, the witness of Jesus Christ. And, and that marriage also allows for propagation. Uh, aside of some sort of animalistic instinct, there's, there's something to this propagation. It's designed to create a witness here on earth for God and his people until the last generation, until the final generation. But when that final generation appears and the Lord gathers all of his folks to himself, it's going to be in a new creation. It's going to be in a perfected kingdom. We don't live in a perfected kingdom right now. We're in the kingdom of God, but it's not perfected. And that perfected kingdom will be populated by believers only, and the relationships in that kingdom are going to change. And Jesus reveals that in verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age when the kingdom is perfected, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, Jesus doesn't defend the resurrection. He just tells them it is. We're not going to get into discussion whether or not it is. I'm telling you it is. He affirms it. But things are going to be different than they are now. Because in verse 36, he says, For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of of the resurrection. For those who are considered worthy, there is no death. They're going to have an intimate relationship with their Father in heaven. There's going to be no need for procreation because there's no death. No need for marriage as a testimony and a witness to Christ because the full testimony, the full witness of Christ will be manifested right there in glory. The perfected kingdom, the perfected people, God's faithfulness proven, all of his promises fulfilled, truth put on a permanent display in a fully redeemed and fully holy people. And Jesus said, well, if that kind of blows your mind, let me tell you something, it's already happening. And look what he does, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, he said, you bring up Moses? Well, let's talk about Moses. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he uses Moses' own words to come back to these guys that have this crazy question. And he says, Moses didn't say that God was. He said that God is. And he didn't say that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. He said that they are. So now he is not God of the dead, Jesus says in verse 38, but of the living, for all live to him. 
saying, those guys look dead to you, don't they? I'm telling you, they live forever in the presence of God. And this news is devastating to the Sadducees. Jesus just proved by a simple quote of Scripture. Did you read this? You're talking to me about Moses. Did you read what Moses said? He just proved that they're wrong about the resurrection. Then some of the scribes in verse 39 answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him a question. The scribes step in. They shake their heads and go, Huh? Did you hear that? Does it say that? Somebody get the scroll out. Let's take a look at it. (gasps) There it is right there. He's right. What do we do with this? And with this, the Sadducees can't can't discredit Jesus. Now, every major group among the leadership of the Jews has come up against Jesus and have embarrassed themselves. These guys saw Moses as the ultimate authority concerning the scriptures, and he was, but if they're going to be good leaders, they need to read the scriptures completely and objectively, not just parts of it. The problem the Sadducees had They're trying to make the scriptures fit their beliefs instead of changing their beliefs according to what the scriptures say. Well, since since they brought up the scriptures, Jesus is now going to use the scriptures to define exactly who he is. Let's take a look at the authority of scripture. Verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, when the Jews heard Christ, they're not thinking Jesus Christ. They're not thinking first name Jesus, last name Christ. They're thinking about the Messiah, the one who's going to come and deliver them. Now, whether or not they believe Jesus was the Messiah is a question that needs to be addressed here. So far, they're not getting it. So Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to bring some clarity to what he's saying here. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Jesus even cites the scripture. You're familiar with the book of Psalms, aren't you? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the Jews saw Psalm 110 as a description of a king, one who would succeed David, maybe not David's son Solomon, but one who would come after David in David's bloodline. We talked about bloodlines earlier and bring victory for Israel once and for all. This would be the king that was going to vindicate Israel. So if you follow what Jesus is saying here, and and you got to look at this carefully, but he's linking the Christ, he's linking the Messiah to being a king. One descended from David. David calls this king Lord. David calls this king Lord. And this Lord that David calls will sit at the right hand of God And he's going to be God. But, Jesus says in verse 44, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? That sounds a little bit like a riddle. It's actually a statement. What Jesus wants us to hear in this, what Jesus wanted them to hear, is how can David call his son Lord? Now, a a little bit of background with Judaism will help us here. The father always had authority over the son. But in Psalm 110, the son has authority over the father. The son has lordship over the father. Jesus claims that the only way that this can happen is if the son of David 
is also God. Whoa. Their minds are exploding. If the son of David is also the Lord. And all this comes from a simple reading of Scripture. The Messiah is going to be a man. He's going to be in the bloodline of David. But he's going to be God. An incredible theological statement made right here just in the confines of a few lines of Scripture. Now, i got to tell you something. I, I told you their minds are exploding. And, and their, their minds are exploding because this doesn't make sense. This, this in, in no reasonable way, can we bring clarity to this. Our minds kind of start bending when we give consideration to this. So, as people of the Word, we have to accept this statement in faith and believe it to be true, even if it challenges our reason. Now, follow me on this. See, it, it, it's easy for us, when we begin studying the deeper things of God, to try and reason them out, to br- try and bring some logic to them. We want to figure them out. In the process, we hear ourselves saying like, well, I know what it says, but that just doesn't make any sense. You ever heard that in a Sunday school class? I know what it says. It must mean something else because I can't figure this out. And, I, and maybe I'm uncomfortable with it. So, so at that point, we come up with some reasonable way to explain all this. And that reasonable way is usually something that appeals to us something that we're comfortable with. And what we really come up with is a way to define God, a way to define God and a way to rearrange his word so that it makes more sense to us. That's what these guys are doing. Brothers and sisters, we we don't get to define God. God defines himself and he reveals himself through the scriptures. The scriptures have his authority and the scriptures trump all sense of reason. Not a political statement. We don't get to define God. And God does not have to appeal to our sense of reason. God says, I am. That should be enough for us. Some things we have to accept in faith. Well, leadership's just having a hard time with this. So we have one more authority to look at, and that's the authority of scribes. Now watch this. Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now, when he talks about long robes here, the scribes, you know, they were pillars of the community. Uh, They had the fantastic clothing. The long robes had filigrees on them. There were things hanging off them. They were expensive. And and that was just their outer covering. They wore some really expensive clothes. They were very, very fancy. They were very fashionable. And love greetings in the marketplace. Now, there was a special way that you had to approach a scribe. You couldn't just come out and go, hey, scribe, how you doing? Give me five. There was a protocol you had to follow if you encountered a scribe in a public place. So they liked that. They loved the greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue. They sat up front. 
and, and when they went to synagogues, up front near where the pulpit was, where the teacher was. It was a sign of their importance, of their, uh, of their significant influence in the community. So they liked the best seats in the syn- synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. It sat near the host when there was a feast. That was a place of honor. Recognition that they were important. And I've got to tell you something. What Jesus is describing here is he describes are totally 100% self-focused. It's all about them. And it shows, and Jesus proves this, it shows in the way they treat others. Verse 47, they who devour widows' houses, they take advantage of the poor, and for a pretense make long prayers, they say a lot of words, but never really say anything of true substance. Never say anything of eternal value. And their fate is that they will receive the greater condemnation. Why? Why is everything so harsh? Because everything they do points towards themselves. Everything that they do is to advance their own agendas. They don't lead people to Christ. Listen to me carefully. They don't lead people to Christ. Do you see any similarities between these scribes and some modern day personalities? Just think about it for a second. Fancy, expensive clothing, fashionable attire, Special greetings in the marketplace. Oh, that fancy clothing, that comes in a lot of different forms. Special greetings in the marketplace. Like, thumbs up, yes, in the comment section. Ratings, popularity. They sit up front. Sitting in front of multitudes of people. They sit in seats of honor. They go to the award shows. They get the accolades. They get all of the the comments that are favorable and so on and so forth. They are celebrities. And all of this describes people in the media, brothers and sisters. The talking heads who are searching for ratings. Who are leading people everywhere but towards Christ. And let me tell you something. It's not just the people we disagree with. It's the people that appeal to our reason and our logic. I told you this a few weeks ago. They tell us what to do. They tell us what to get upset about. And And then we go and we get upset. Oh, it's about the election. Oh, it's about the vaccine. Get the vaccine, don't get the vaccine. Fine. Let's don't fight over it. The church is constantly distracted from what it's called to do. We are called to be messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to live lifestyles that point towards Him. And the church, the church universal, has been sidetracked by issues that are not eternal. And by the way, it can't be resolved. Didn't expect to go there. 
So we've seen these five examples of authority. The authority of Christ. He has it. Jesus has got all the authority, but the world doesn't recognize it. They will. They will. We saw the authority of Caesar. The world recognizes the authority of Caesar, but it doesn't always respect it. We're told to, but only insofar as we don't go against God, as they don't tell us his sin. We saw the authority of Moses, spectacular. And as believers, we should know Scripture. We should know all of it. We should read it objectively with the idea that there, it's there to help us change. It's there to bring us closer to the Father. And that should be a, it can be a challenge, and, and maybe it should be. But we should be ready to change our thinking to accommodate what Scripture says, not twist it around to accommodate what we think. We saw the authority of Scripture. We don't get to define God. He defines us. And He reveals Himself in and through the Word He's given us. And then we saw the authority of the scribes. And the only authority that those local celebrities had was that that was given them by the people. The people surrendered themselves to their authority. And the same thing's happening today. So the question for the day, who's your boss? The question, who has authority in your life today? I want you to think about this very carefully before you walk out of here, before you turn the channel off. Who rules over your emotions? Who rules over your fears? Who tells us to look here and look there, but never tells us to look to the word of Christ? Who determines how you will react to the people around you? I thought the guy who fired me had authority. And you know what? He did. He did. It was limited. He he was my boss in a way. I let the whole thing upset me. And it, it wasn't for a long time that I realized what was going on because the next job that I got brought me to Northern Virginia. Well, I lost that one too. Got equally upset. And, and it, by any objective measure, I was not treated right there either. So I, that, that kind of mired me in my own self-pity. The next job I got brought me to Warrington, Virginia. And when I began to realize that the real authority in my life was God, and all I really had to submit to was Jesus Christ, I began the process of thanking God for all of those humiliating moments in which I thought somebody else had authority. It doesn't make me a spiritual giant. I'm still learning those lessons. But I constantly have to ask myself, who has authority in my life today? Who will determine how I react to the people around me? Who will rule over my emotions? Who can make me angry? Who can make me sad? And really, the only one that can do any of that is my Father in heaven. And he loves me and wants me to be with him forever. Jesus has the final word on authority. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let that rule your day. Let that lead you through the next week.
Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have the authority. Lord, that you are God of all creation and that everything works for our good and your glory, Father. Help us to realize that. Help us to walk in that. Allow that to change us, Father. Allow that to draw us closer to you. Allow us to see the world around us through your eyes, Father, not as the haves and have-nots, not as the, the lost and found, but as people that need Jesus Christ. All of us do, Father. Let us be your agents. Let us move towards them with your heart as you draw all of us towards you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for turning in. We'll be back next week. Pastor John here again. I want to thank you for spending some time with us. If you're interested in supporting our ministry financially, you can give online at wbfva.org, clicking on the giving section, or you can send us a check to Warrington Bible Fellowship, 46 Winchester Street, Warrington, Virginia, 20186. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your prayer requests. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week.